welcome to the GUT Podcast. I'm Maddie McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, UK, and current visiting research fellow at the National Cancer Institute in the USA. In my capacity as Education Editor, I'm hosting this podcast today. This month, I'm discussing the Editor's Choice Manuscript from the April issue, entitled Recent Advances in Clinical Practice Challenges and Opportunities in the Management of Obesity. I'm delighted to welcome two authors here today, Dr. Andres Acosta and Dr. Baram Abu Dai, both from the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology within the Enteric Neuroscience Translational and Epidemiological Research or Centre within the Mayo Clinic Minnesota in the USA. Welcome to the podcast. So obesity is a growing epidemic in our society. What is the scale of this globally? This is, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Barham Abudeya. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. So as you know, obesity has reached uh, epidemic proportion in developed countries and its prevalence is also increasing in developing countries. Uh, in the United States, uh, the adult overweight prevalence is about 64% and the adult obese prevalence is about 33% among men and 36% among women. Also, this is an increasing problem in, the, in children with a prevalence of obesity among children in the United States of about 17%. Uh, as stated before, it's not just a problem for developed countries. It's also an evolving problem in developing countries. And according to the Global Burden of Disease study that was just published in The Lancet, compared to 1999, uh, in 2010, obesity associates conditions such as hypertension, have really replaced childhood underweight and communicable diseases in children as a global uh, contributor to the uh, disease burden worldwide. So it's really a big problem both uh, in developed countries and developing countries as well. So just remind us of the key disease outcome consequences of this diagnosis. Well, uh, obesity affects almost every organ system in the body and uh, increases uh, the risks of uh, numerous diseases, including type 2 diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, cardiovascular disease, obstructive sleep apnea, and cancer. The increased severity of obesity also correlates with the higher prevalence of of its associated comorbid conditions. Likewise, obesity increases the risk of premature mortality. Uh, For example, a male in his 20s with a BMI above 45 will have about 22% reduction in their life expectancy because of obesity. That's about 13 uh, years uh, decrease in life expectancy. There's been a marked increase in the understanding of the complex pathophysiological aspects of obesity. Can you briefly summarize the systems involved in the development of obesity, really to set the scene for our forward discussion on the emerging treatment strategies for this disease? Uh, hi, this is uh, Dr. Andres Acosta. I'm a gastroenterology fellow at uh, Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. There's a marked increase of understanding of uh, the pathophysiology of obesity in the last uh, two decades. We, we now understand that there are multiple key players in um, controlling energy balance. The energy balance is mainly regulated by uh, food intake and energy expenditure. And uh, these both entities are controlled by a very complex mechanism uh, that connects the brain, our gastrointestinal system, the adipose tissue, and uh, many organs around in each uh, compound. So we will be discussing each of them in more detail during this uh, podcast. 
So moving on now to currently available treatments, tell us about the non-surgical strategies that have been tried or are currently available, including how effective these are and the limitations to the approach. Great. So uh, the cornerstone for uh, obesity and weight loss management is lifestyle modification. Uh, we know from studies such as uh, the Diabetes Prevention Program and the LUCA-HEP trial that losing from 7 to 10% of body weight uh, produces enough health benefits to prevent diabetes. Unfortunately, the large study, the LUCA-HEP, that was sponsored by the NIH did not find an improvement in overall mortality in these individuals. Nonetheless, we strongly recommend that uh, lifestyle modification is applied to every single treatment, and this is uh, mainly consistent of a hypocaloric diet. Uh, the current guidelines recommend 500 kilocalories less of what someone is eating, and this should be in uh, women uh, from 1,000 to 1,200 calories, and in men around 1,500 calories. And this should be combined with uh, exercise, and the current guidelines recommend around 150 minutes of uh, exercise per week. Unfortunately, as we know, diet and exercise are not works for everyone, and it's very difficult to be compliant. And that's why uh, there's other uh, mechanisms that we can be used for weight loss. One of those approaches is behavioral therapy. Other approaches is pharmacological. And in uh, the drugs that we have currently available for obesity, uh, mainly the short-term medications such as entermin uh, or Orlistat. And then we have two new long-term medications that was recently approved. One is uh, locarserine. And the other one is a combination of entermine with uh, topiramate extended release. Locarserine, uh, in the studies show that it was a weight loss from um, 5 to 8% compared to placebo. And it was sustained during the uh, course of the medication. And then uh, with fentermine and topiramate extended release, uh, the weight loss was seen was 8 to 10% compared to placebo. Unfortunately, uh, both medications are centrally acting and they have uh, centrally mediated side effects such as uh, headaches, dyskusia, changes in your taste perceptions, as well as some other side effects. So they're not the most safe medications, and uh, both came with a warning from the FDA you know, for control of uh, locarsine for hypertension and uh, topiramate fentermine for uh, pregnancy uh, due to uh, signs of a cleft palate seen in uh, pregnant women. So uh, these medications need to be taken with cautious, and they don't produce the effect that we would like to see uh, to manage weight. Well, bariatric surgery remains the most effective, currently available treatment of obesity. Can you explain the options that are available, and again, how effective these are, and the limitations associated with this? Well, uh, available bariatric procedures include uh, laparoscopic and open row and Y gastric bypass, uh, sleeve gastrectomy, adjustable gastric band, vertical banded gastroplasty, duodenal switch, and biliopancreatic diversion. Uh, row Y gastric bypass uh, uh, accounts for approximately 80% of all bariatric surgeries done in the United States, and it's mostly done through a laparoscopic approach nowadays. Percent excess weight loss associated with a row Y gastric bypass is about 60-70%. That's how we measure uh, efficacy of this procedure is by reporting this percent excess weight loss, which is the amount of weight above the ideal body weight that is lost after this, these procedures. Also in severely obese patients with type 2 diabetes, row Y gastric bypass results in better glucose control and diabetes resolution than medical therapy alone, with a rate of diabetes resolution of about 84%. 
However, surgery is surgery and it's associated with mortality and morbidity. The mortality rate associated with laparoscopic rowai gastric bypass is about 0.3%, and uh, rowai gastric bypass is also associated with uh, some early and late post-operative complications. The early postoperative complications include anastomotic leaks, uh, hemorrhage, thromboembolic events, and wound infection. Uh, late postoperative complications include anastomotic stricture, marginal ulceration, bowel obstruction, abdominal hernia, micronutrient and vitamin deficiency, and uh, increased incidence of cholelithiasis. The incidence of uh, macro and micronutrient deficiency with rowai gastric bypass is about 15% and the incidence of cholithiasis and this complication after rowai gastric bypass is about 30%. So given, these, given the cost associated with surgery, the mortality and morbidity, it's estimated that only 1% of obese subjects who qualify for bariatric surgery will undergo such interventions. Therefore, a more, a minimally invasive alternatives uh, for bariatric surgery uh, are needed to impact the uh, global burden of this disease. So your review then focuses on the emerging understanding of the neurological pathways that control energy intake and expenditure and discuss the potential to target this aspect of obesity pathophysiology as a treatment strategy. So let's talk about this now. Um, firstly, let's discuss the central nervous system. The hypothalamic nuclei have a significant influence here. Tell us more about this. Yes, thank you. Um, so this is a very interesting uh, complex mechanism. We know that in the hypothalamus, there are multiple nuclei that uh, play an essential role in uh, food regulation. Uh, one of the key players is the arcuate nucleus, who uh, is on the base of the hypothalamus and has two sets of neurons. The neurons that are neuropeptide white, a guti-related peptide pathway, and then the other type of neurons that are the propiomelanocortin and cocaine adrenergic-related uh, transcript pathway. These both type of neurons produce different mechanisms to other nuclei in the hypothalamus. In the neuropeptide Y, I could relate that peptide pathway is an appetite-stimulating pathway that uh, communicates with the paraventricular nucleus and the uh, lateral hypothalamic area to induce appetite. On the contrary, the propiomelanocortin pathway communicates with the same centers, the paraventricular nucleus and the uh, lateral hypothalamic area to inhibit the signal and to induce satiety. Both pathways are called the first neuron pathways, and they communicate with the second neuron pathways that are the uh, paraventricular nucleus and the hypothalamic area. Now, in this area, uh, we uh, send other signals to the higher brain, including the cortex, the limbic area, and the reward centers in order to communicate with the rest of the body about our appetite or satiety. So in the last decade, significant effort has been trying to understand these pathways and how they communicate with the higher centers of the brain as well as with the brainstem, the gut, as well as the adipose tissue. So uh, we know that when uh, certain key aspects of this pathway, such as blocking a receptor, such as the melanocortin-4 receptor, is blocked, the individuals will have a different phenotype and, and they will become obese. This pathway is shown that uh, either when you're genetic predisposed to having this mutation or when you do it in an animal model, uh, it blocks the uh, POMP-C pathway and uh, individuals have a higher appetite and uh, decreased association. There is a um, significant amount of detail and uh, complexity in this mechanism that regulate our food intake 
uh, making the CNS a, a key player in um, the obesity managed and food intake regulation. So what experimental models have been employed to increase the understanding of this and what are the limitations of the currently available technologies? Most of, 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 of these findings have been done either on kids who are born with uh, genetic mutations that tend to produce obesity or that have then been translated to uh, the laboratory and produce knockout or uh, knockup models. So either in knockout models or in transgenic models, we have seen different phenotypes regarding these pathways. Unfortunately, when we do such as a knockout model, we know there is a lot of uh, regulatory mechanisms that compensate for the lack of certain genes. So uh, a recent studies using uh, optogenetics have shown us that when you knock down or knock up a gene in an acute fashion, you have a different response than if you knock out the gene in vivo. So all this knowledge that we have been gathering the last decade using knockout has been uh, very interesting and have contributed significant for the field, but we don't understand if these compensatory mechanisms have been playing a key role here and therefore, these novel technologies such as optogenetics or functional MRI will be essential to study in more acute setting the phenotype of uh, these pathways. And that's why in our review we mentioned about using uh, functional MRI, including the pulse arterial uh, labeling, uh, spin labeling MRI to study uh, the acute response after food intake in the hypothalamic areas. So tell us more about the brain-gut axis and obesity. We know that the uh, gut and brain are closely interacting to regulating food intake and uh, energy expenditure. So in response to, to nutrients, or in response to sensing nutrients within the GI tract, there is a modulation of these gut neurohormones, such as ghrelin, CCK, GLP-1, PYY, among others. These hormones interact peripherally with afferent branches of the vagal nerve, and more centrally, they interact with the uh, brainstem and the hypothalamus to regulate satiation, eating behaviors, and, uh, and energy expenditure. So we'll talk more in details in the next question about these specific incretins, but that's, that's a global overview that the gut is interacting with the central nervous system through gut neurohormones uh, to regulate some of the physiological aspects of energy intake and, expen and expenditure. Okay, so moving on now to targeting the gut and the treatment of obesity. Um, we've just mentioned that there are hormones that have been assessed in this context. So what's emerging from this perspective? So within the mucosa of the small intestine, for example, there is uh, enteroendocrine cells that express receptors that taste luminal nutrients and release gut peptides that mediate uh, satiety and enhance insulin secretion, therefore given the name incretins. These peptides exert their effects through interaction with the afferent vagal nerves and spinal, uh, spinal nerve fibers intervening the gut or by entering the bloodstream to function as hormones influencing the area postrema or hypothalamic areas through locally permeable blood-brain barrier. So we're going to focus on one of these better studied hormones uh, or incretins, and this is the GLP-1 or glucagon-like peptide 1. So GLP-1 is synthesized from the enteroglucagon or pre-proglucagon gene from the enteroendocrine L-cells. These L-cells are located in the proximal small bowel, but they're more abundant in the distal small bowel and colon. 
So GLP-1 is released in response to contact with luminal nutrients or through interaction with bile acids or by submucosal neuronal stimulation mediated by voltage-gated calcium channels. So GLP-1 has multiple functions, including inhibition of glucagon secretion, stimulation of glucose-dependent insulin secretion, increasing insulin sensitivity, and in inducing uh, satiety by affecting gastric uh, motility and accommodation. So we know that GLP-1 levels, for example, are blunted in response to luminal glucose in type 2 diabetics, resulting in early defective insulin response to luminal glucose load. We also know that GLP-1 and insulin levels are significantly increased in the early postprandial period after a white gastric bypass, an effect that's not seen after diet-induced weight loss. However, mentioning this, quantifying the contribution of the rise in GLP-1 and other including for that uh, reasons to the therapeutic effects of 4Y gastric bypass and with independent improvement in glycemic control requires further study as it's, it's an area of active research, but uh, there's no clear pattern emerging yet as far as to the actual contribution to the effects of 4Y gastric bypass with incretins such as GLP-1. So let's talk about that a bit further. And, you know, we mentioned that bariatric surgery was through on uh, why gastric bypass is the most effective treatment. So how does this procedure achieve its success? So as, as you stated, bariatric surgery, especially why gastric bypass, has thus far proved to be the most effective intervention for uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes. The exact mechanism by which why gastric bypass exerts its effect on weight loss and glycemic regulation is not fully understood. But the timing of the resolution of diabetes suggests that through Y gastric bypass effects on diabetes is at least partially independent of the degree of weight loss. Furthermore, we know that, uh, the, uh, that food restriction and malabsorption is not sufficient to explain all the effects of raw Y gastric bypass. There, therefore, there is uh, definitely other factors at play, including alteration of gut neurohormones, bile acid circulation and metabolism, changes in gut microbiome, among others. However, quantifying the contribution of each of these to the therapeutic effects of Roy gastric bypass and weight-independent improvement in glycemic control is still under research and uh, needs further work. So you just mentioned the colonic microbiome, and of course there's intense interest currently in the role of this in health and disease. And it's now clear that this holds a key role in the pathogenesis of many diseases of the GI tract and beyond. So I appreciate that this topic could fill a podcast in its isolation, but can you summarize what's known of the role in the microbiome in obesity pathogenesis and whether this can be manipulated as a treatment strategy? Yes, uh, thank you. This, is, uh, this could be definitely a, a podcast by itself. Um, there's a lot of emerging evidence that the microbiome is playing an essential role in uh, food intake and uh, food and energy regulation. We know that there's about 10 to 100 uh, trillion bacteria in our gut. And uh, for more than 30 years, we know that they play an essential role in, the, in digestion. Uh, we know that they're essential, for example, in the, in the, the metabolism of bile acids and short-chain uh, fatty acids as well. So, but recently, with the new advances in um, the microbiome and the uh, omics era, we've been able to characterize better these uh, different uh, type of bacteria or f uh, film and uh, have done very extensive association studies. Um, so, 
what we know so far in, in a brief summary is that we know that obese patients, uh, mainly on a Western-type diet, have a higher concentration of uh, firmicutes and bacteroides compared to lean individuals. Additionally, uh, one of these uh, firmicutes that has been uh, studied most uh, deeply is the lactobacillus that's been shown to be higher in concentration or in proportion to other type of bacteria in, in uh, patients with obesity. So there's been a lot of uh, studies trying to use this type of bacteria in uh, germ-free mice and trying to develop the phenotype, and uh, that has been the, the case. Um, so uh, without going into further details, definitely the microbiome is playing an essential role, and uh, we know that it's increasing the metabolism or sh or sh of short-chain fatty acids, changing the proportion of uh, bile acids in the colon, and likely increasing the inflammatory uh, response of uh, bacteria and the low-grade inflammation that we're seeing in uh, obesity. So I think uh, more studies are needed in this field, but it's definitely going to bring something very exciting and uh, hopefully new therapeutic approaches with either probiotics or prebiotics uh, for the management of uh, metabolic disorders. So finally, what does the future hold for the treatment of obesity? Are there any additional novel emerging concepts on the horizon that we haven't touched upon? Sure. So as we discussed here, the anatomic, anatomic alteration of the GI tract really results in a multitude of physiological adaptation and the homeostatic mechanism involved in body weight uh, regulation. Rural gastric bypass is a complex procedure, but you could really break it to kind of five distinct anatomic alterations. One is the isolation of the gastric cardia by creation of a small gastric pouch. Number two is exclusion of the distal uh, stomach from contact with food. Three is exclusion of the proximal intestines from contact with food. And four, exposure of the jejunum uh, to partially digested nutrients. And finally, there is a partial vagotomy. So there is now emerging endoscopic technology uh, that, that could replicate different components of the raw gastric bypass endoscopically uh, without surgery, thus contributing to the effective treatment of obesity at lower cost uh, and with minimal risks. Uh, one such example of these devices is, is, the, is a duodenal jejunal bypass uh, liner, which is a Teflon liner that's inserted endoscopically into the duodenal bulb. It extends to about 60 centimeters from the bulb to the proximal jejunum. This achieves exclusion of the proximal intestines from contact of food, similar to a component of Roy gastric bypass. This device has shown promise in improvement of diabetes and the treatment of obesity. Ongoing pivotal trials in the U.S. with this device are underway, and we're hoping that these endoscopic approaches targeting the GI tract would open the door for a new era of effective therapeutic modalities for obesity and diabetes. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd like to thank both Andreza Costa and Barham Abudai for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dr. McLean. Appreciate it.